Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming. Today we are talking New Jersey workers' compensation. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. Uh, thanks for joining me today. I wanted to show off my New Jersey Devils t-shirt. Uh, took my son to the game yesterday and they won in overtime, so that was a fun uh, game. Um, all right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today and over the next couple months. Uh, welcome to the intro to New Jersey workers' compensation webinar. Um, this is part of a new series, and we've redone all the webinars for 2023 uh, because you asked for it. You said, hey, we'd like these to build. It sometimes feels like the um, different topics or the subjects are kind of random, and we'd like to see these build on each other and give us a comprehensive overview, soup to nuts, New Jersey workers' comp, beginning to end. So that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to start with um, this month an overview of the New Jersey workers' compensation system, how the system works. Um, so really want to get everybody's feet wet. Who is this right for? It's right for anybody who just wants to learn a little bit about this system and sort of uh, lay the foundation for what we're going to go through over the next several months. Next month, February, our, our case title, or sorry, our, our uh, presentation is going to be titled Case Foundations. We're going to talk about the basics of a New Jersey workers' compensation case. Accepted, denied, average weekly wage, benefits, statute of limitations, initial defense or denial um, postures, what, what kind of legal defenses can we raise? So we'll talk about that. And then we're gonna go into more and more advanced topics. And uh, we're gonna go through medical benefits, motions for med intents, lost time benefits, return to work, what we'd litigate. Of course, I'm gonna talk about medical provider claims. Of course, I have to talk about reopeners and permanent disability and how we value cases and how we close cases. So I'm gonna go through that uh, over the course of the year. Now. Uh, all these classes, I think, are going to be about 45 minutes long, and everybody knows Greg talks fast, so I'm going to try to do my best to keep them at 45 minutes or under. Please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun, um, more interactive. My intention is to ask as many questions as I can. I will not embarrass you, so um, I will answer your questions. Um, I'll say your first name so you know you're, I'm answering your question. I will read your question for the whole audience that's playing along here. And then I will answer it as best I can. And uh, the number one question I get after a webinar is, hey, was that recorded somewhere? And the answer is yes. They're all recorded. They're all archived. And they're all on our website, which is loisllc.com. And you can go back in there and watch any webinar we've given, I think, going all the way back to 2016. So hundreds and hundreds of topics in there. Uh, but this series will absolutely be recorded. So what are we talking about? Uh, what do I want to express to you? What do I want to share with you? And what do we want to think about when we're thinking about New Jersey workers' compensation? Your goal in a New Jersey workers' compensation case is to stay in control of the case, whether you're an employer, a carrier, attorney, uh, you know, an adjuster, an examiner. I don't care what your role is. Our goal on this side of the aisle is to try to stay in control of that case and not lose control of the case. And there's a lot of ways you can lose control of your New Jersey workers' compensation case. And when that happens, your exposure goes up and you're in the nightmare zone because now the petitioner will be in control of the case and you don't want that. We're going to talk about ways that employers can reduce exposure. We're going to talk about return to work programs and how you can work with your carrier to do that. I just want to remind everybody, whether you're an employer, a carrier, an insured, an insurer, we're all on the same side here, and that's the approach we're going to take. Um, I'll also tell you that, particularly in a New Jersey case, being decisive is important. You want to stay in the driver's seat in these cases. Uh, remember, we're not just litigating against opposing counsel and the claimant. 
there's a third party there. It's the judge. And the judges are very active. They're very involved. They act as almost like a second attorney in the proceedings and act like they're representing the, the claimant. So we've got to be decisive and know what we want when we uh, head into a New Jersey workers' compensation proceeding. And that means you need to understand the judicial system, understand its biases, because this system is biased against the employer very strongly. It's also biased against things that help the employer, things like lump sum dismissals. Uh, this system is also biased in favor of allowing the petitioner to reopen cases forever. And we need to stop that. So that's one of our challenges is defeating reopeners. So that's something I'm going to teach you during the course of this course. I'm also going to teach you how to win medical provider claims, which are vexing and annoying a lot of my clients. And we'll talk about our best, our best strategies uh, for doing that. And finally, all through this course, we're going to talk about practical ways to reduce exposure. What works, what doesn't work. I've been at this for 22 years. I can't believe I can say that. Uh, my first job was with the Division of Workers' Compensation in New Jersey. I was a law clerk to the division. It was my first job after law school. Uh, I'm very familiar with the system and how it works, and I'm here to help you reduce your costs and exposure. That's my role. So let's talk a little bit about Lois Law Firm, and I do want to give a little quick look back at 2022. Uh, for those of you playing along. And I also want to introduce you to the firm for those of you that are new to us and what we're about and what we're doing and what we're going to do this year. So what's our vision, our mission, our values? Our vision is to be the go-to workers' comp defense firm nationally for the top employers and the top carriers. That doesn't mean everybody. That means for the top, maybe 50, maybe 25. I don't want to keep it small. We want to keep it uh, uh, you know, tailored. We want to be their go-to. I want to be the first person they call when they have a challenge, whether it's New York or New Jersey or Longshore. And then for the people that are helping and serving these amazing employers and insurers, I want to be the best place for them to work in this industry. Our mission is to take control and stay in control of these workers' compensation cases. Take control and stay in control. That is our Jersey theme. If there's only one thing you learn from me in this entire year of webinars, it's going to be that our goal is to stay on top of these cases, stay in control of them, not let the petitioner take, uh, take control, because that's when employers and insurers start getting taken advantage of. Our goal, of course, is to drive these cases to closure the way you do that. The tactic always is to stay in control. And that's our firm mission. We don't do 20 things here. I don't do divorces and real estate closings and commercial litigation. We only do one thing. It's workers' compensation defense, and we are very good at it. We're good at it because of our values. Um, our values here are creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service. That's the values that we bring to these workers' compensation cases, and it also are the values that inform our culture. Uh, we want our culture to be harmonized with the way we approach cases. And these four values are really how we run this place. Inside our workplace, it's the same values, creativity, advocacy, professional, and service. We call it CAPS. And we add one more, which is we treat each other the way we would want to be treated in the same way we treat our clients. I always say to my attorneys at work here, I say, I want you to treat your clients and handle their cases the way you would handle your mom's case or your dad's case, right? Take it personally. These are our family members. What is creativity? Why is it so important to me? I mean, I built my reputation on being creative, trying new tactics, adapting, collaborating with my clients. It means we have to take some risks. 
inside, in the office, at Lois, we have to trust each other. We have to take some risks for each other. We have to be open to coaching, right? And we have to be willing to solve problems. But creativity, it's easier to define as what it isn't, right? When you see your attorneys doing the exact same thing in every case, same recommendations, it's super frustrating. No one wants to deal with that, okay? It's the same old, same old. I also think, and I've, over the years, I think uh, we currently have over 40 attorneys working here, but I think over the years, I've managed probably over 100 attorneys in my career because at a prior law firm, I was their managing partner of their New York office. Um, and what I can tell you is sometimes attorneys uh, or their paraprofessionals procrastinate. They just don't know what to do, so they just do nothing. They just sit there. Um, or I see them filling their day with chores. They, they don't tackle the big challenges they have in their cases. They just uh, do a lot of easy phone calling or nonsense work that doesn't actually move the ball. So that's not creativity, and that needs to be stamped out and uh, disciplined out of the workplace. Internally, the way we work together, right? We need to be creative towards each other. We need to continue to learn. And I know how we can measure we're being creative. It's because we're learning. Internally, we're doing training, workshops, internal file reviews. We're doing that every week. And we're always asking each other the question, what did you learn? What can you apply to your cases? Uh, when people tell me, attorneys, paraprofessionals tell me, I didn't learn anything or I already knew all this stuff, I, I think to myself, well, that's not being creative. And I don't expect that they're going to be able to deliver that value to the, our, our cases or even internally. Our second value is advocacy, right? Sometimes attorneys lose track of the fact that they have a client and we're here to aggressively pursue that client's interests. I'm here to stand up for you so that you don't get taken advantage of in a worker's compensation system which is at best indifferent to your needs and most of the time is hostile to you. Advocacy is holding our adversaries responsible. You know, the law requires a lot of things from plaintiffs and their attorneys. They don't do most of them. That's my role, I need to hold them accountable. In the workplace, we have to be advocates for each other. I always stick up for my attorneys. I stick up for my teammates. We push people up that we want to become managers or leaders. But at the same token, we hold each other accountable, those people who do not exemplify or model our firm values. Advocacy is easier to define by what it is not. In our cases, it's letting our clients get preyed upon, right? That's not, it's being lazy. It's failing to disrupt the other side. That's my job. My job is to make their job harder, right? That's what I'm here to do. Uh, I need to test their case, not just go along with it. Advocacy is not explaining bad outcomes all the time. I think nothing frustrates clients more than hearing, oh, well, in this jurisdiction, we can't use age MRIs. Or in this jurisdiction, these, this is the IME doctor you use and you stuck with them. No, okay, that, that's not advocacy. That's not thinking outside of the box. And the same thing inside the workplace, right? In the workplace, we can only support people that work here that exemplify our values internally, externally. And we don't tolerate behaviors that conflict with that. This has to be measured. And to me, the way this is measured, particularly internally, is when our leadership is pushing people up. When I see them finding people that we should maybe put into the leadership training program or uh, nominate to be managers, that's what I'm looking for. People are engaging with their teammates. Professionalism is the next value, and that means we do what we do with ethics and integrity. We recognize that when we're defending you in a workers' compensation case, we're the representative of your company or your insurance carrier, and we have to defend you in an integrous way. I'm civil to my adversaries, but I'm not friends with them, but I'm civil to them, right? I'm polite to the court. I'm appropriate. 
to me, professionalism is also maintaining a normal work-life balance, right? That means you need to have time for yourself and time for your loved ones. This should not be a 24-hour-a-day job. And so in our workplace, it also means respecting the needs of teammates. If someone's calling teammates before and after working hours, that to me shows someone who's out of balance and they're pulling other people out of balance, so we can't tolerate that. Professionalism is also defined by what it is not. It's not lazy, shortcuts, hiding things, not respecting confidences or keeping confidence, confidences, sorry, or having a work-life balance that's out of check. And in the office, we don't tolerate a lack of professionalism either. I measure this internally by how well our managers steward the people that are working with them on their teams. Are they making people more efficient? Are they protecting them from the time wasters and the distractors? And are we addressing behavior when they we see that behavior is out of balance? Uh, are, we, are we doing those things? The last value is service. And this value to me is incredibly important. It's literally how I built my whole business. It's just by being responsive. And we have firm standards internally on response times. And we do uh, try to enforce those. And our, our firm standards are pretty much standard across the industry. We'll return your phone calls the same day and emails within 24 hours. So we want to either meet or exceed that. That's, the, that's basic stuff. But really, to me, service is actually creating more than just a vendor-vendee relationship with our clients. We want to be their go-to person. We want them to think of us as a partner, not a vendor. I want you to think of me as someone who's here to help you as you get your program aligned, as you get your uh, cases resolved. In our workplace, it means we're treating each other, again, with the golden rule. We're communicating well, and we're forming great bonds with each other based on respect. In our workplace, we're trying to avoid transactional relationships. We're trying to look forward towards true relatedness here and not opportunistic behavior. The same way I think of my clients, this isn't a transaction. This is a relationship. It's more than just a paycheck. I get a lot of direct feedback from clients, and that's how we measure this. I also communicate with clients every month. I'm going to send you, I'm sorry, every quarter I send my clients a scorecard and I say, how are we doing, right? Internally, we start every single meeting at Lois Law Firm by going around the room and saying, tell us your client or employee headlines. Tell us what's happening, what's going on positively out there that we can build on that we're happy about. The last thing is a golden rule workplace. We treat each other the way we want to be treated, and as we apply these values that we have, creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service, we think to ourselves, how would I want those applied to me? Right? How do I expect those to be applied to me? And then, and how do we apply them to our clients? Right? We want to treat our clients the way we want to be treated by them. I think those are our outlooks. In 2022, we really applied this internally by creating new practice groups. So I really looked at my my practice. We're defending currently over 3,000 cases, and I said, you know, I really serve two different markets. One market is insured clients, and we call that client insured risk. It's carriers and their insurance. And they have a very specific and very sophisticated view of their litigation needs. Uh, and then I have a second market that I serve, and it's really self-insured, or high deductible uh, clients. And that's kind of a different market because that's their money. They're gonna treat things with a certain level of scrutiny, sophistication, uh, and want a certain level of advocacy. So we really decided, hey, you know what, there's really two different markets. And so what we did was we divided the firm in half. Uh, we created an insured risk practice group and a self-insured practice group so that 
we could really design practices that would meet these two separate needs. Uh, we also created new roles within those groups to supervise and manage them. To do this it meant over the last 14 months or about 14 months ago, we reassigned more than 1,100 cases internally, which involved every administrative department um, from client relations, intake, information technology, and about half the attorneys in the practice, which has led to now a really tight alignment between client and attorneys. Our clients now have one or a small team of attorneys that work on their matters, and they know when they refer a matter here, they're gonna get a very specific uh, attorney to defend them. In 2022, we also had a lot of cultural highs here. In February, we did an amazing bowling event where we rented out a bowling alley to benefit the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Um, in March, we did a clothing drive, which was run by a diversity committee uh, for a charity. In June, we did a dog show, which benefited the Seeing Eye in Morristown, which provides seeing eye dogs to the visually impaired. In August, we did a book drive. In September, for our firm anniversary, we did a cool casino night. Um, and the, one of the best things we did this year actually didn't cost anything um, except for um, a lot of uh, 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 engagement, which was we did a gratitude month. I mean, it was coming up to Thanksgiving, and we just said, hey, every day, everybody put one positive thing into your team's channel. And at the end of the month, we did a potluck lunch, which was run by our diversity committee. And we ended up having food for, brought in by like 20 or 30 different people. It was really awesome. Uh, it was really one of my most fun activities. And then, of course, in December, we had our holiday party and our cheese party that we invite our clients to. So, 2022, our firm structure uh, changed. We are now organized completely by client, not by attorney. Uh, we've been really working on our internal standards to lead the industry in terms of our standard work product. We also went to a one-to-one -one ratio between attorneys and paralegal, um, which has really led uh, to two things. One, uh, a much better, uh, I think, more integrated approach between the attorney and paraprofessional, but it's also led to reduction in costs for our clients because the paraprofessional is doing at least half, sometimes even more than half of the work in the case, uh, which is significantly driving down the average bill. Uh, we've always been doing litigation management based on metrics. There's dashboards throughout our office. Everybody knows what their numbers are. Our training system is really beyond reproach. It's really awesome. We've got a great internal practice training system. So those are the things that uh, we did or we're working on or continue to apply in 2022. And these are the things that aren't changing, right? Uh, these are the things that we're gonna keep working on and we're gonna keep applying. So that's a little bit about where the firm's been over the last year. Uh, if you've been with us, thank you so much uh, for being a client and helping us get to where we've been today. We are now just under 100 employees and it's really a lot of fun to come here and lead these great people. Um, all right, let's get into our topic. So. I'm gonna go through some basics of workers' compensation, then we're gonna get more and more specific about New Jersey workers' compensation and what makes New Jersey workers' compensation unique. So workers' compensation is a type of insurance and it provides benefits to workers who become injured due to on-the-job accidents. The purpose here is to create a no-fault system where the employee does not have to go to war with their uh, employer uh, when they get injured in an accident at work. And really the idea here was to address the disparity in power between the employer and the employee. And they really didn't want to have employees having to drag employers into court and create all those sorts of issues. But it also was to insulate the employer from the prospect 
of going before a jury in Kings County, New York, uh, or in Patterson, New Jersey, and getting a jury verdict against it for employee injuries due to employer negligence, because that could lead to giant awards. So that's really the trade-off. Now, workers' compensation premiums for that insurance never show up on an employee W-2 or payroll uh, deduct or paycheck deduction. It's always paid for by the employer. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear employees talk about how, oh, I didn't really sue my boss. I sued uh, their insurance company. Well, the truth is the insurance company recoups that uh, cost uh, by charging increased premiums. And those increased premiums are going to be generated by an increase in what's called loss experience. So really it comes, always comes out of the employer's pocket. A lot of parties involved in a workers' compensation case, always the party, one party that's always involved is the employee, right, and the employer. Um, if there is an insurance company, they will be um, also involved, third-party administrator. And in New Jersey in particular, just remember that once you're in a litigated context, and relatively rare, it's only about 10 or 15% of cases become litigated, but when you're in a litigated context, the court becomes a party in the case. And remember, your judges are active. Uh, they have biases, and they bring them to the workers' compensation case. So that really is a party that we need to take into consideration. The main benefit for the employer of the workers' compensation system is exclusivity against lawsuits. You cannot be brought into civil courts or civil actions. Um, you know, you can choose how you're going to organize uh, or address your potential risk or exposure by budgeting into um, your yearly uh, sort of annual budget to run your business, how you're going to pay your premium, whether it's upfront or monthly, et cetera. Um, that's another benefit. And the last one is sort of being able to cl classify which of your employees are going to be covered and not covered by workers' compensation by perhaps being able to identify some as independent contractors. What are the benefits for the employee? Well, the number one benefit is immediate, no-cost medical treatment. The next benefit is money. What's wage replacement? Now, New Jersey does have a temporary total disability concept. It does not have a formal partial temporary disability concept, and that's why I put an asterisk here on this slide, although the courts have increasingly recognized the uh, potential for partial temporary disability. And I'll talk about that more in future presentations. New Jersey also has a benefit for the employee, which is permanent residual disability. This is for medical impairment and for death and dependency benefits. Now, um, wage replacement benefits are what we're going to refer to as indemnity benefits. So that's really what I'm talking about. When I say indemnity, I am talking about temporary total disability. That's wage loss, right? When I talk about permanent disability, that's for permanent impairment. That's compensation. And just to further explain some of these um, concepts and terms, Terms like partial temporary disability means that the uh, disability is uh, temporary in chronicity and characterized as partial, meaning it is not a total disability. So it's a short-term or temporary disability expected to plateau at some time, and it's not currently totally disabling. They can do some work, but not their regular job. What kind of injuries are covered um, by the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act? Well. Mainly, you're going to be dealing with physical injuries. That's usually the, uh, the genesis or the um, impetus in a case. Um, roughly 10 to 15% of cases will be due to alleged repetitive or cumulative trauma injuries. 
The Act also recognizes exposure injuries. That would be things like inhalation or loud uh, in, um, injuries. Perhaps someone's exposed to a chemical, they inhale it into their lungs and they damage their lungs. Or you could think of something like exposure to loud noise, which um, could create a hearing condition. New Jersey also recognizes mental injuries, particularly those that arise out of the physical injury. So someone has a arm amputated in a machine and then later develop PTSD. Well, that is um, really a sequelae of the physical injury. That, so that would be a physical-mental claim. New Jersey also recognizes pure mental claims, a psychiatric disability or mental illness claim where there has been no traumatic or catastrophic physical injury at all. An example of that might be someone who has been um, subjected to discrimination or uh, harassment at work who could bring a claim perhaps for a generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD without there being any physical traumatic injury of any type. Compensability of an injury is really going to be dependent on the facts of the case. So compensability is not automatic. When you're looking at whether or not a case is going to be compensable, we need to know things like, is this actually my employee? Do they actually sustain an actual injury? Right? Um, I've got cases here. And in fact, we just won a case in which the employee brought a psychiatric claim, a PTSD claim, saying they developed PTSD because they were afraid to go to work because they thought they might contract COVID by going to work. In fact, um, Jeremy Janis, one of our senior associates, just won that case, arguing that fear of maybe someday getting hurt at work or being exposed to a pathogen uh, cannot form the basis of a workers' compensation claim. Okay, uh, So it has to be uh, an actual injury. It has to actually occur. It has to occur in the course and scope of the employment and arise out of some circumstance of the employment. I had an employee who worked in a computer retailing store uh, selling phones uh, who was at a meeting at work. She was clocked in. She was on the clock. Uh, she was at a meeting. She was required to be at the meeting in person. And her boyfriend broke up with her during the meeting via text. She brought a claim against the employer alleging that she had developed an anxiety condition because of the boyfriend breaking up with her and she claimed it was work-related because it happened at work. Our argument was that no, that may have happened at work, but it did not arise out of it in the course of the employment and for that reason, it was not compensable. There needs to be some kind of actual impairment, whether that impairment is temporary or permanent in nature. Uh, sometimes you have people who bring claims and say, I got injured at work, I got a laceration, a cut, a bump, a bruise. You say, okay, but you didn't lose any time there's no, nothing permanent about that. Uh, you know, you, you got a nosebleed at work. It is not going to be compensable. Uh, there does not have to be a loss of wages in New Jersey for a case to be compensable, uh, whether immediate loss of wages or wages into the future. New Jersey also uh, has provisions that say whether an, it's an aggravation or an exacerbation of a pre-existing condition, those could both could be compensable under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. Now, lots of cases or lots of claims might not be compensable. So we're going to go through in future presentations a real dissertation or a real discussion of the potential defenses that we have in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. But cases like horseplay, fights, assaults, I defended a case, in fact, it's on the firm website called Cuccinello versus the Sports Authority of New Jersey in involving 
employees who were engaged in horseplay at work. They were bored. They were working in a warehouse. And so what they would do is they would get in the forklifts and they would drive the forklifts at each other with the tines of the forklift raised, the forklift uh, sort of spikes lifted. Uh, and they, this game was called Forklift Chicken. Well, poor kid, uh, Corey Cuccinelli, he did try to turn away at the last minute, but unfortunately that forklift tine pierced his pelvis, went through one side of his pelvis, came out the other. Major injury, damage to his hip, torn labrum, et cetera. And the question is, is that compensable? And of course the defense is no. You are engaging in horseplay. There was nothing about playing you know, uh, forklift chicken in the uh, the employer's warehouse that is going to benefit the employer. So that would be horseplay. And some fights, different types of assaults would not be compensable. Recreational activities, social engagements, right? So, uh, recreational activities include things like playing on the company softball league team, or how about uh, going to the Lois Law Firm charity bowling event for the, uh, the Challenged Athletes Foundation? Um, you know, are those things going to be compensable or not? It's really going to depend on the level of compulsion by the employer. Other things, uh, we call them personal deviations from work, right? The, the over-the-road the truck driver who makes a detour for a personal event, a detour or a frolic, those can or sometimes might not be compensable. Um, injuries that arise from going to and coming from work, particularly commuting time injuries. Uh, those are generally not going to be compensable. New Jersey also says that intoxication or drug use that solely causes the accident will not be compensable. However, the statute does say that it has to be the sole cause of the accident and be intoxication. So these are generally speaking very difficult defense to prevail on in a workers' compensation case. However, the big takeaway here is just because an accident occurs at work doesn't necessarily mean the claimant where the employee is automatically entitled to workers' compensation. So when a new claim is made against you in the New Jersey context, the common response is the first one is generally going to be investigation. Now, there also is some state-required reporting. New Jersey does require a FROI, but I put LOL on the slide because the penalty for failing to file your FROI on time is only $15, and it is also rarely assessed. And so it's really a dealer's choice as to whether people file that FROI or not. Um, another common response would be doing your basic medical record canvas, a prior claim search. Uh, I think it is you know, best practice in every case to do a Claims Index Bureau report. And then because in New Jersey you get the opportunity to direct and control medical care, you really should be selecting or directing the petitioner to a physician or medical provider of your choosing. If you choose not to, if you think, wait a second, um, maybe this isn't related, uh, particularly in circumstances like an occupational, cumulative, or repetitive trauma claim, maybe your first decision will be to send them to get an independent medical exam. And let me be just very clear about IMEs in New Jersey. These are not independent or impartial in any way. The term is independent medical examiner, but they are not impartial. These are just hired medical experts. The petitioner's attorneys have their own set of medical experts. Again, they're called in court independent medical examiners, but they are absolutely not independent, and the same thing for the respondents. And of course, when a new claim occurs, we're going to report that to the carrier. Just a little brief aside, um, one thing that is useful to look back at is a loss report. Um, these are generally going to be created at the um, company or the carrier level. 
Uh, and I get these all the time, and these are sometimes sent to me when a new case is um, created or sent to me to defend. And I look at these things, and I just want to just briefly touch on this. The loss report is a very good way of getting a quick summary of what's going on in a workers' compensation case, but it's also a good way of seeing if something is going on that's out of whack. You know, when I see a case where, for example, um, and, and you know, you're going to use these loss reports to determine what's been paid out already, what has been reserved for the future, uh, that's the general use of them. But you know, you should also be using these loss reports as an idea to get an idea of are these is something weird happening? Is there a red flag? And you know, in a case where there's a lot of lost time being paid to the person, and in this case, there's $1,000 of lost time, but there's not a lot of medical or maybe no medical at all in the case, you know, those are ones where you're going to want to red flag them and take a look at them. So, you know, looking into that loss report or those quick summaries of the case, that could be useful to trying to filter out the cases that really don't maybe have a basis or the medical is not really supporting those claims. Losses are going to have all sorts of different labels. Uh, I don't really see a lot of standardization. Some of my clients will say, hey, this is an incident only. What does that mean? Well, it means something happened in the workplace, but it does not arise to the level of needing to be A, reported to the carrier, or reported to the state. What kind of cases don't have to be reported to the carrier or to the state? Well, the answer is where the claimant does not lose anything more than one day of time, and all the treatment is provided on site. There is no uh, external treatment being provided. Those are really the two things you're gonna look at. Um, I've also seen um, losses labeled medical only, meaning the person has lost no time from work. They've um, been able to work their full-time, full-duty job. They just needed a little medical care, maybe a couple of Band-Aids, maybe a stitch, uh, maybe some burn cream, something like that. Those would be medical onlys. And then other than medical only, and sometimes these are called lost time claims. And those are typically the ones where I would get involved or defense gets involved. This is the small minority of cases where people are going to lose actual time from work and time that exceeds the waiting period. Occupational disease claims are sometimes labeled separately, as are some of my clients call some of their cases catastrophics, meaning amputation, death, uh, or maybe just a high exposure case. And again, that could be just based on the work type of the claimant, the inability to offer them light duty work, uh, or a very high average weekly wage. New Jersey, uh, there's a lot of insurance types that we're going to get to in the next slide, but every single one of the insurance policies for the insured uh, risk population that we defend always has two parts to their coverage. Part A is statutory coverage, literally just says we defend you or we indemnify and defend you for the your exposures. Uh, which are created by the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act, essentially saying this coverage extends to cover anything that falls under your New Jersey Workers' Compensation um, exposure. And the second part of these uh, policies has a Part B, which is for employers' liability coverage. And just parenthetically, I thought we were going to get so many Part B claims um, following COVID, and it really just never happened, even though it seems to me like there was a huge potential for that. It never really occurred. Um, there are some other insurances that we need to be just mindful of. You know, you'll see cases in where maybe the jurisdiction is not New Jersey, maybe it's federal, then under the Jones Act or the FECA Act or the FILA Act. Uh, New Jersey's uh, Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation, um, it, New Jersey is what was called an exclusive state. So if the claimant has um, jurisdiction under Longshore or the Defense Base Act, um, New Jersey no longer has jurisdiction. So New Jersey is an exclusionary state in that respect. 
but um, other states that have jurisdiction, and, and you know, the other thing we'll see other insurances is, uh, and we're going to talk about when we get into the medical provider claims uh, presentation, uh, we've got a lot of uh, New York claimants in New York workers' compensation cases who send their employees or send their patients, I should say, to New Jersey for medical care for the purpose of creating a medical provider claim. So those are all potential exposures. Uh, market labels, right? So you're going to see even more things. Voluntary paper, that means essentially someone went to the market and they bought an insurance policy. Uh, guaranteed cost means that the only thing that's going to impact the premium is the size of the payroll. Uh, you'll see retroactive, uh, retro, sorry, retrospective policies in New Jersey, a lot of large deductible programs in New Jersey uh, with the self-insured limits or large deductible limit, starting at usually half a million dollars, uh, and then going up from there. I've got clients with 750, a million, a million and a half. Um, New Jersey, we have layers of insurance, so some of my self-insureds have layers of excess policy. New Jersey does permit captives and rent to captives, and um, those are uh, covering people. New Jersey does not really have a public pool uh, in the in the sense of a monopolized state fund, although New Jersey does have guaranteed funds uh, that will cover uh, carriers. New Jersey, of course, permits self-insurance plans and risk and purchasing groups. In terms of uh, resolving or creating your own insurance program in New Jersey, New Jersey does permit owner-controlled insurance programs but these are extremely rare. And the reason these are rare in New Jersey because it does not have Labor Law Act like they have in New York or Scaffolds Act like they have in other states, which would impute strict liability to construction uh, or um, uh, tradesmen on construction projects. So OSIPs and CSIPs can occur in New Jersey, but they are relatively rare. All right, what's unique? about New Jersey. So some of the things that are very unique to it are going to be the extraordinarily slow speed of litigated cases. Court practice in New Jersey is based on the federal civil court rules and the New Jersey civil court rules. Um, and so th this is a slow process in allowing for things such as discovery. The court practice is now mainly virtual. And I can say mainly because there are some courts which are not virtual. It is not uniform throughout the state. Um, the chief judge has said that all the workers' compensation courts are open, but for some of the courts, they are really not permitting in-person hearings and they are doing everything virtually. And then I have some courts in where uh, proceedings are occurring virtually, except for if there is a trial, then the judge wants it to be in person. And in fact, I am trying a case in, on Friday, January 27th, in Jersey City, where we'll be taking the testimony of the claimant's physician, and that's because the judge of compensation wants it to be in person. So there really is no uniformity as you go throughout the state as to whether it is virtual or in person it is very much judge by judge. The speed of change in New Jersey has been really slow, although uh, I used to say that a lot. It didn't, it didn't change very much in 40 years, but in the last few years, there have been some changes to the um, statute which have impacted us. Probably the most um, important change was the change in 2021, making COVID, uh, creating a presumption that COVID-19 cases are compensable. And then also in 2020, uh, changed or an amendment to the statute to give an increased compensation benefit for hand and foot injuries. Another thing that's unique to New Jersey is the prevalence of reopeners. 
something like one in three cases in the workers' compensation system is a reopener. That's an incredibly high percentage. That means that cases that are either tried to judgment or settled between the parties are very likely to be reopened by the petitioner. And there's a very low bar to reopening a case. The petitioner just has to claim that their condition has materially worsened. Um, the other thing I would say is New Jersey has a very political workers' compensation court and practice, uh, and it needs to be navigated carefully. We'll talk about that further in uh, future presentations. Some of the good, unique things about New Jersey, again, generally a slow pace of change. So everything that I'm gonna teach you about New Jersey workers' compensation during these webinar series, it's probably gonna be very good practical advice for the next 10 to 20 years. Really the last ma major statutory change we had in New Jersey was in 1979, which also, by the way, was when New Jersey got a new constitution. So that's how long we've had a very stable um, statute. Um, and things are slow in New Jersey, meaning particularly court practice, um, but it's very rules-based and you should not be getting taken advantage of in New Jersey. New Jersey also has an excellent online docketing system, which goes back to the 1970s, uh, which is very useful for finding prior claims for um, petitioners in your cases. So if they've ever brought a workers' compensation claim in New Jersey, you should be able to get those records very easily and very cheaply. Uh, you also have a very responsive judiciary. The judges of compensation do get personally involved in cases, which again, can be good, can be bad, but it can be very good for you when you need to get some judicial action or input in a case. Some bad uniques about New Jersey, again, that's slowness of process. The courts will grant the petitioner's attorney a thousand adjournments, a thousand continuances. They do not have any sense of tempo or pace. Uh, and makes it very difficult for us to use litigation tempo against petitioner's counsel, who are typically carrying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. So I cannot say, okay, I'm forcing you to try this case in a week. They can very easily go to the, to the judge and get the judge to adjourn that. Uh, so that's a challenge for us. Another bad, unique thing about New Jersey is there is a bias, a judicial bias, against approving lump sum dismissals. New Jersey has a statute, section 20 of the statute, uh, which permits uh, a lump sum dismissal in any case. But the judges tend to construe it narrowly and try to come up with reasons why cases should not be dismissed in a lump sum fashion. Uh, that hurts us and that slows down the process and creates more and more reopeners, right? Because if a case is not lump sum dismissed, that means it could come back in the future even after you settle a portion of the case. And so that's very frustrating. And there are things you can do uh, to reduce the potential for cases to reopen. New Jersey also has a real problem with medical provider claims. These are uh, claims that are filed directly by medical providers claiming they were not paid enough by you, the insurance carrier or employer, for the medical treatment that they rendered to your employee. The courts are not addressing them in a coherent fashion, uh, and so they are proceeding very differently based on where you are in the state, which courthouse, which judge, et cetera. And of course, New Jersey has a COVID-19 presumption that those cases are compensable. The last unique thing I'll talk about in New Jersey is the compensation statute itself. Most states have selected to be either a whole man impairment state or a wage loss state in terms of their theory of compensation. In a whole man or impairment state, which New Jersey is, compensation is for the loss of use and is not dependent on wage loss. 
this is frustrating for a lot of our employers and clients because you've got employees who are getting giant awards in workers' compensation court who are back to work, working full-time, full-duty, maybe working more hours, asking for overtime, and they're turning around and saying, but what do you, how did they just get a $90,000 award for this back injury or this cervical sprain, and now they're back working for me asking for overtime? And the answer is because New Jersey is an impairment state. The judges are not looking at wage loss, or wage loss is not a requirement in order for them to receive a large award. And in some employments, I'm, I'm thinking particularly public sector employments, like think of cops or firemen, um, during the course of their employment, they're racking up dozens of scheduled loss of use awards, dozens of permanent partial total awards, uh, you know, maybe in totaling in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars without losing significant time from work. And this really frustrates employers. How do I help employers? Well, doing things like this, training and advising you about what are the best practices, um, helping employers put safety programs in place, we're talking about things like uh, light duty programs. Once a loss happens, we're here to help guide that claims investigation, maybe shield it by having it be directed by an attorney. Um, we're here to help you um, get your case to close, so I'm here to guide and direct the TPA, and I'm here to move cases to closure efficiently. Don't ever want to lose track of who we're defending in these workers' compensation case. Now, for you, the employer, your goal is to stay in control of your case, right? You can do things, employers, like design and implement a return to work program, and of course, being cooperative with your carrier and us, defense counsel, because we're on the same side. I also think being decisive early is useful. What kind of case is this? What is the direction you want to go? Is this a case that we want to settle? Is it a case that we need to push back and challenge this claimant because we think there's a fraudulent component to their allegations or claims. You know, being decisive helps us set that strategy early in the case, and that's what we're here to help you do. All right, I'm about to get to questions, but I just want to share with you what our look ahead is towards 2023. Obviously, we're going to continue with this uh, training program. Uh, my goal for this firm is to improve organizational health this year. Uh, our goal is to empower our leaders, invest more in our people, and continue to grow. We're going to invest in our staff and our attorneys. I like what's happening with this one-to-one -one attorney to paralegal ratio. I'm unaware of any workers' comp defense program in the entire country that is one-to-one -one like we are here at Lois. I want to continue to develop our future leaders. Uh, last year, we started a leadership development program. This year, we've expanded it. We now have 31 people in that program. And of course, we're continuing to recruit onboard training to integrate more attorneys and more power professionals so I can provide you with a better level of service. My mission to defend employers, uh, to keep you and protect you from being taken advantage of by the workers' compensation system is in place. Uh, that's what we're gonna do this year. So let's jump over here. I see questions, question, questions. Let me pop in and see what we got. Okay, Greg, Deborah asked the question. Greg, is there a settlement with an employee? Can the employer do it in exchange for a resignation? Okay, so no, you cannot uh, settle with an employee out of court. Any settlement uh, involving a, a disposition of the workers' compensation claim, which could be a dismissal of it, a resolution of it, uh, a settlement, a stipulation, has to be done through the workers' compensation court and, un, and approved by a workers' compensation judge. So. First answer to the question is no, you can't not um, you know, settle a case outside of court. Next, can you make a release and resignation part of a settlement that's filed in court? No, 
Um, we cannot uh, go and get a judge to approve a release or a resignation, releasing any other claims in any other jurisdiction or approving a resignation. However, you can do a resignation directly between you and the employee, and the same thing with a release. You can do a release directly with the employee. Uh, and when you do that, that's absolutely fine. It's done out of court because it's not dealing with a workers' compensation issue. Um, that is done between the parties. We negotiate those all the time. I have to tell you, though, that in the hundreds of cases that we settle or close a year, a very small percentage of them are we successful in getting a release and resignation. The plaintiff's bar in New Jersey is very anti against releases and resignations. And so it's relatively rare uh, that you will see those in a New Jersey workers' compensation uh, case. And when I say rare, I mean maybe one out of 50 or maybe even higher where you'll get a release and resignation. But it is possible, Deborah. So if you or your client says this is a very important part of us resolving these cases, or maybe you need it in a specific case, then yes, that's something that we can uh, try to do. Okay. Uh, all right, then the remainder of these questions are just, hi, Greg, happy Chinese New Year, how you doing, like your shirt, those kinds of things that do not um, sort of arise to the level of being answered in front of everybody. Okay, thank you for those comments, though. All right, um, that's it for this presentation. Thanks for joining. Uh, we're going to get into deeper and more substantive topics as we go uh, through. Wait a second, I think I got one more question here. It just popped in. Let's see. Oh. Just a thank you and a thank you. Okay. Uh, we're going to get deeper and deeper into these topics. We are going to go, yeah, I'm not going to talk about the firm anymore. I'm not going to talk about what we did this year or doing next year. From here on out, guys, it is workers' compensation, and we're going to uh, sort of go through these topics that I laid out in that first slide. So, again, thanks for joining me. I know today went on for a long time, uh, but I think it was good to sort of set the stage and explain here's our outlook and here's what we're going to talk about this year. So, again, thanks for joining me. Have a great week, and I'll see you next month.